Good morning. Thank you. Um, man, it is so good to see you all. And uh, such a privilege as always to be in the house of the Lord worshiping together and just declaring his steadfast love and faithfulness towards us. And if you're anything like me, then you know you do not deserve to be able to sing. Your love never fails. It never quits. It never runs out on me because I deserve so much less than that. Uh, my name is Kondo, and I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point. And uh, again, a special welcome. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad that you came and chose to spend some of your morning with us. We may be a little biased, but we tend to think you made a great decision and uh, trust that the Lord has been meeting you so far, and we trust that he'll continue to meet you. And uh, our hope is that you walk out of this place most impressed with him and most keen to live your life more fully for him. Um, you've joined us in a series that we are calling Summer Lovin', Taking the Church Outdoors. And uh, in this series, we're really wanting to figure out what it looks like for us to be the church this summer. Uh, we're not so much talking about what it looks like to go to church more this summer. We're talking about what it looks like to be the church more wherever we happen to go this summer because we know the schedule gets a little funky over the course of the summer. Uh, we get to interact with people that we don't normally interact with. For some of us, our kids are back home. Um, our kids are just around a little bit more. We're going to have family reunions. Some of us have already had some, some great, some not so much. Uh, you know, we are out and about when Nona Lake comes alive in the summer. You know, Warsaw just had its fair and the lake games are coming up here in just a couple of weekends. There's so much activity, so much um, buzz, and uh, it gives us the opportunity as a church to just interact a little bit more with people. And we realize that that often means uh, the schedule conflicts, less people are in the services. That doesn't freak us out. That just makes us realize that means more of us are out and about. And if more of us are out and about, and if as we're out and about, we're interacting with people that we might not normally interact with, or we have more opportunities to interact with people, well, what would it look like for us to be the church? What did it look like for us to put the love of Jesus on display? What did it look like for us to love well in whatever circles we get to be in? What did it look like if the lives of the people who, who interacted with us this summer just got a little clearer glimpse of Jesus because of us? And so in leaning into that and exploring that, we've been kind of camped in one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in this section of scripture, you know, with, which uh, Jonah Berger just slayed a little bit earlier, in that section of scripture, we are learning what it looks like to love well. Uh, we are learning what it looks like um, to be Jesus in our relationships. And we want to do that more and we want to do that more beautifully. So uh, this morning we're going to continue that conversation in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we really want to spend some time looking at what love means and what love looks like, especially as it relates to other people's misfortune. How does love interact in the face of other people's misfortune, other people's demise, when people go through less than ideal circumstances. I'm going to explain that so it makes a little more sense. Um, you may or may not know this about me, but let me tell it to you. I 
am a huge Peyton Manning fan. Um, and uh, the biggest Peyton Manning fan, I think. Um, some of you, I'm sure, would want to argue with, with that. But it's, it's, it, it's true. Um, I think he is the best player in the National Football League. For anyone who doesn't know Peyton Manning, by the way, Lord, I pray for them. But um, he is, in my mind, the best player in the National Football League. And he's not even playing anymore. He's retired. And I still think he's the best player. I cheer for whatever team Peyton Manning plays for. That's me. Whoever he's playing for, I would cheer for them. Which means last season, and it's going to be true again this season, um, I just hope everybody loses and that they cancel the Super Bowl because he's not playing. So as far as I'm concerned, what's the point? Now, here's the measure, by the way, of a true Peyton Manning fan. You, you don't measure how great a Peyton Manning fan you are by how much you know about his career. No, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, how much you cheer for the teams he's on. No, that's not the true measure. The true measure of being a Peyton Manning fan is not about his statistics or even how much you like him, honestly. The true measure of a Peyton Manning fan is much simpler than that. It's how much do you dislike Tom Brady? That's the question. <laughs> And have I said I am a huge Peyton Manning fan? Um, and you can read between the lines. But no, honestly, I, I want to share this. And I realize that this is going to upset roughly 1% of you um, out here. But this is, confession is good for the soul and I'm with friends in a safe place. Let me just say, last season, when I heard that Tom Brady was going to be suspended for the first four games of the season, I'm just saying, I'm just, help me, Lord. I raised my hands to the roof, and I'm like, yes, down he goes. And then I started to feel guilty. I started to feel bad, like, oh, my goodness, do I even have a soul? Can God redeem a wretch like me? And then I realized God did that. God is clearly on my side, and he's the one who ultimately called for that suspension. And then I danced a little bit, and then a few months later, he in the most epic Super Bowl comeback rigged the whole game and somehow won, you know, the title. And I cried, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I am not a Tom Brady fan on account of the fact that I'm a huge, huge Peyton Manning fan. And so when less than ideal things happen to Tom Brady, I tend to celebrate. Turns out uh, the Bible frowns <laughs> on that kind of thing. Um, the Bible does not really approve of me applauding someone else's demise. Um, in fact, what we're going to see here in a second is what the Bible says is if you love someone, you are not going to delight in their misfortune, which obviously means I have a little bit of work to do in the department of loving Tom Brady. If you really love someone, you are not going to be thrilled when, when you know, that co-worker who always seems to get the promotion over everybody else kind of is taken down a notch. You're not going to, you know, applaud and, and be happy, you know, when that family member finally gets busted or when your sister finally gets in trouble. Love is not ultimately thrilled when other people struggle when other people suffer when other people experience 
misfortune. But let's look at that. Uh, if you have a copy of the scripture, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, we're going to be there. The verses or the verse will be up on uh, the screens. If you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would love to get yours to you. In fact, it is waiting for you at the connection corner right after the service. Please head there and just say, I need a physical copy of the Bible. Um, we'll get one to you. And if we cannot get one to you today, we'll get one to you as soon as possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 6. Look at what Paul says. He says, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Delight. Okay, let's talk about that for um, a quick second. When something evil happens, when something bad happens, love does not delight. The word delight means to approve or applaud something. The word delight means to approve of something or applaud something. Now, let me say this about the word delight. Delight does not particularly care how much or how little I approve or applaud. I may barely applaud something or barely approve it. The point is just that I applaud or approve something. Um... This word delight doesn't particularly care either um, whether I externally approve or applaud something or internally approve or applaud something. It's just the fact that I approve or I applaud that thing. Um, I may very, very, very loudly approve of your swag outfit to the, to the degree that I shout it on social media. Or I may just quietly approve your outfit in my heart. The, the word doesn't really care. Both are delight. Both are delight. The idea is that I give a thumbs up or I give a hand clap. To something. Doesn't matter how loud the clap is or how little. Doesn't matter how big the thumbs or how small the thumbs. The point is, I approve. A lot or a little, loudly or quietly. My dad was the, the, the quiet, um, and very little, um, uh, delighter. So I know my dad delighted in and approved of and applauded a lot of things I did, but he didn't express it often and he didn't express it loudly. I had to kind of go searching for it in his eyes and eventually I would find it and be like, aha, you delight in me. I see it. But it wasn't loud. It wasn't Highly expressive. And that's going to become something good for us to get a hold of as we continue down this path talking about this idea of delight. Um, so Paul is saying, love does not applaud or approve of evil. Love does not applaud or approve of misfortune. If I love you well, I'm never going to quietly or loudly 
a little bit or a lot, give a thumbs up or a hand clap when something unfortunate happens to you. In my heart or out loud, in my mind or on social media, in neither case am I going to approve or applaud the fact that someone is experiencing misfortune. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to feel like um, applauding. Um, it doesn't mean I'm not going to be tempted to approve. It just means that I will quickly redirect and rein that feeling in. I will reprimand my heart and say, hey, we heart, we are not going to even move in the direction of being okay with them going through that terrible experience. We are not going to smile, let alone celebrate the fact that they are experiencing misfortune. Um, um, I can still remember when my son, who's 13 now, um, was a was a, a baby. And I can still remember the stage we were going through. We were going through that stage in his life where um, he was kind of learning to, to stand. And so any opportunity he could to yank his little chunky frame up on on anything that seemed like it could support him, he would do it. He was constantly pulling himself up on a variety of different things. I can remember one morning we were at home, uh, just the two of us. And I don't even remember what thing it was. I just remember that it was sitting on the coffee table and it was mine. And whatever this thing was, it was a thing that no baby had any business messing with. And so when I started to realize that he was really fascinated and intrigued by it, I moved it out of his reach. But that wasn't going to dissuade him. He just kept yanking himself up, you know, and then he would stand, you know, barely, barely standing. And then he would start to try and reach for that thing. And I would tell him over and over again, don't do that. And I was old enough to understand what don't do that meant. And so he would kind of sneakily look out at the corner of his eye when he think I was thinks I wasn't paying attention and he would just yank himself up and start to reach for it and then I'll tell him again don't do it and we went through this routine several times as he continued to sneak around I will never forget um, on one of his attempts he reached for whatever this thing was and I, I, I something went awry something went wrong and he slipped and immediately went down and it will never forget the sound I heard as his little mouth made contact with the corner of that table and he hit the deck and I look over and blood is just gushing from his mouth. So you can imagine as a dad, I get up from the couch and I raise my hands to the roof and I'm like, yes, <laughs> Woo! he's down. He deserves it. He should have listened to me. I was right the whole time. I was, no, it doesn't matter how terrible a first time dad I was. When that happened, I was mortified. I remember scooping his little chunk eponymous frame up into my arms and holding him and apologizing to him over and over again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't even care where his blood was going on me. I was just mortified in an attempt to comfort him because... Love will never approve or applaud of someone's misfortune, even if they deserve it. 
And if you're a parent, you know that. You are never going to say, I love my kid. But men, they got in a wreck the other day. And I'm like, yes! Because I've been telling them not to drive recklessly. And they've been driving recklessly, which led to a wreck. And so that just proves me right. And it proves them wrong. And it serves them right. No. You are never going to delight in their misfortune. If you love them. Even if you think they deserve it. If you really love someone, you're not going to delight in the fact that they're experiencing heartache. She broke up with him and he was just heartbroken. <laughs> you know, but, but because it's not a healthy relationship, it doesn't matter if the relationship is not healthy. Love will not approve or applaud of the heartache someone is experiencing. The misfortune that coworker is going through. The marital trouble that couple is having. Love will not approve or applaud of someone's misfortune. That's the idea Paul is starting to inch towards in this passage. That this summer, none of us, the church, if we're going to represent Jesus well, we are not going to be the people who are clapping like, what other bad thing happened to that side of the political party? Oh my goodness. We are not going to delight in other people's downfall. And then Paul gives the alternative. He gives the other side of it. He tells us what love actually does instead. Look again at verse 6. Says love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Now, let me just say, um, this is not how I would have written this verse personally. <laughs> Clearly, I didn't write this. Because if I wrote this verse, A, I would never say love doesn't delight in somebody's misfortune. Because I, I just wouldn't put that in there. I think there are times. So that wouldn't be me. But even if I wrote that first part, I would not follow it up with this second part. This just doesn't seem like good writing. He says, but love rejoices with the truth. Wait, what? Rejoices with the truth? I would think the most reasonable follow-up to the first part would be love rejoices with the good. Love does not delight in, love does not applaud, love does not approve of, love does not clap for, love does not give thumbs up, you know, to bad stuff. I would think the follow-up would say, but what love does is it applauds and it rejoices and it celebrates when good things happen to people. It celebrates the good but that's not what Paul says. Paul says, no, uh, love rejoices with the truth. And I'm like, where did the truth even come from? What if I told you that um, I've been explaining this idea in an incomplete way to you all to this point? I mean, would you, would you want your... Your money back. Because I focused on an important aspect of what Paul is reaching for. But not the main thing he's getting at in this passage. What he's saying to us is actually even more stretching than love does not applaud or approve of someone's misfortune. 
What he's saying is actually a little bit more stretching than that. Truth. Truth. When Paul uses the word truth here, he's speaking about more than something that's correct. He's speaking about more than something that's just accurate. He's speaking about more than something that's just factual. When he speaks about truth, he's speaking about something that is in keeping with God's word. When he defines truth, he's saying it's something that is in keeping with God's word. And for those of you who who were with us when we um, went through the series a number of months ago on the armor of God, we talked about the belt of truth in this very way. Truth. Truth is a legal word. Paul is speaking about living according to God's law. It's a legal word. He's speaking about living according to God's standard. Living according to God's rule. That's what he means when he uses the word truth. It's describing someone who is doing what God says. Someone who is living in light of what God says. That's what the word truth here means. Church, we are getting to what Paul is getting at. The word truth then is really significant in this passage because it helps us to understand the word evil that he used a little bit ago. And if you're paying attention, you notice we didn't define evil. We just imposed a definition on it. And we referred to evil as misfortune. But whatever truth is, we know it's the opposite of Evil. This will make sense here in a second, which means when Paul speaks about evil, he must be speaking about missing or moving away from God's word. Evil must mean I am doing stuff and making choices that disregard or they take me away from what God's rules say, what God's law says. That's evil. Okay, so what's Paul saying to us then? He's saying love does not applaud or approve of Someone's misfortune. But someone's greatest misfortune is when they move away from or they miss God's truth. That's what he's saying. If you love someone, you can never clap for or give a thumbs up to any choices that they're making that are moving them away from what God has said, because that is the ultimate misfortune. It's not so much that he broke up with you. It's not so much that your team didn't win. It's not so much that you didn't get the promotion. It's not so much that your political party didn't pan out. It's not so much that your financial situation isn't on point. 
The definition of misfortune is that you are moving away from what God has said. You are missing what God has said. And in that case, all of the goodest things can happen to you. But what's the point if you miss the word of God? Because that's going to lead to your ultimate misfortune. And Paul is saying, you cannot meaningfully love someone. And quietly or loudly, a little bit or a lot, internally or externally, be okay that they are moving away from what God says. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, Second Samuel chapter 6, there is a, a story that I think will help put a picture to this. I think it will help put a picture to what Paul is inviting us into. It will help us apply this concept um, of love as we walk out of the room this morning. Second Samuel chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, in the Old Testament... Uh, there was this sacred and special um, thing called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was literally this box. It was this chest made out of wood. And it was layered on the inside and on the outside with gold. So this thing was pretty precious, pretty valuable. On the top of this ark um, were golden, these heavenly beings called cherubim. And there were two of them. And these two heavenly beings were kneeling with their wings facing each other and touching. And these things were made out of pure Gold, the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was some pretty rare and unique articles. In the Ark were the two stones on which the living God scripted with his own finger the Ten Commandments and handed them to Moses on that holy mountain. Those two things were in this Ark. In the ark as well was a rod, that special stick that Aaron, uh, the high priest, carried around. In the ark, there was also this golden bowl that had in it some of the manna, the bread that God sent miraculously from heaven to feed his people. There was actually some manna in there kept in the ark. Needless to say, this was a priceless artifact the most priceless artifact on the planet at the time but beyond all of its gold and bling and all of its content the most special thing about it was that it was believed and it was true that it represented the very presence of the living God which meant wherever this ark went the presence of God went as well in fact it was believed that the presence of God somehow rested between the wings of those two golden heavenly creatures now for years and years and years and years and years and years this ark had been missing 
Because one time the Philistines were at war with the Israelites and they realized like wherever that ark is, it seems like they have victory. And so we've got to steal that ark. That seems to be the key to their success. And so they steal the ark of the covenant, the Philistines do, this enemy nation, thinking it will bring them luck. Needless to say, very quickly they turn around and get rid of that thing because wherever it went in their country, people died People got sick, and eventually they made the connection, and they say there's something about this thing. Let's get rid of it. Uh, So they got rid of it, and it left the Philistines and ended up with some Jews, a little bit closer to home. But these Jews got super curious, and they decided to open the ark and look into this sacred chest. They got sick, and thousands among them died. Eventually, the ark moved and lived at the house of a guy named Abinadab. That's a cool name. Cool name, Abinadab. But anyway, so it got to his house, and it stayed there for about 20 years. By the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is now the king of Israel. And he knows that this priceless, you know, treasure, this, this divine, this, this sacred artifact is out there somewhere. And it is time for that thing to come home where it belongs. So David builds this tabernacle, this special building in which he intends to keep the Ark of the Covenant. And when that building is finished, he goes after that thing and he knows where to find it. So he heads to Abinadab's house. And at this point, the buzz reaches every corner of the nation. People are coming from everywhere. The ark is coming home. The ark is coming home. And thousands and thousands come out of every area to celebrate and rejoice the homecoming of the ark. In fact, they go over to Abinadab's house. And then thousands of people are escorting this thing back to the tabernacle. Where it belongs. This is a monumental occasion. The party is so on point. There is worship. There is celebration. Let's look at it. It describes it here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Look how this thing goes down. It says right here. Verse 1. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel. 30,000. That's a lot of people. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah To bring up from there the Ark of the Covenant, which is called by the name, the name um, of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. They set the Ark on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, um, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel, lots of people were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with cassinets and harps and the lyres and timbrels and, and sistrums and cymbals. So this is a picture. This is, this is a scene now, right? David is dancing. The music is playing. The DJ is spitting the tunes. God is smiling. Worship, as the kids say, is lit. It is a national party happening up in there. And then verse 6 says, when they came to the threshing floor at Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. 
All right, so, so here's the scene, right? They get to some uneven ground. And these animals that are carrying the ark kind of buckle a, a little bit. And as they do, the most priceless, the holiest of artifacts on earth starts to head towards the ground. Now imagine that for a second. All the years of waiting, all the years of working to build this tabernacle, and all the thousands of people who are gathered to worship as they walk it to its home. All of that is about to come to a sudden and abrupt end because that thing is heading for a certain crash. Except um, there's a hero in the crowd. Little do they know. A guy who apparently has the reflexes of a ninja turtle or something like this. So he sees that thing starts to slip and he just Keanu matrixes his way into no. And he reaches out for it and with great strength and precision, buff, muscular dude that he is, he's able to steady that thing and put it back on the cart and he single-handedly saves the year. I can imagine, this is just my imagination, the crowd erupts, they're going crazy. Azza, azza, azza. Aza, aza, and then God kills him. <laughs> That's literally how the story goes. Like, knock, knock, who's there? Aza, aza, who? One minute, aza alive, next minute, aza dead. Like, if you don't believe it, this happens. Look, look at this, look at this. True story. Um, verse 7 The Lord's anger burned against Aza because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. And I'm just saying, talk about misfortune. This dude dies on the spot. And doesn't that story just make you want to raise your hands to the roof and be like, yes! He deserves it. I don't know what he did, but he deserves it. That wannabe hero. He deserves it. No. A story like that makes you want to clench your fists to the heaven and ask God, what? Why? Why kill Uzzah? I'll tell you why. Because um, one time... About 400 years before this, God made a law. God raised a standard. God wrote a rule that said, do not touch the ark. Don't or die. As a did, as a did. That's why Numbers um, chapter 4 verse 15 says, But they must not touch the holy things, including the Ark of the Covenant, or they will die. And this guy missed God's word. 
And in reaching for the ark was actually moving away from God's standard, which is the ultimate misfortune. And he paid for it with his very life. And here's what I want to say. This is a picture that is true about everyone in your life who you claim to love. If they are moving away from what God has said, they are moving towards the greatest misfortune. And what Paul is saying, you cannot say you love someone and in any way be okay with them reaching for the ark. You cannot say you love someone and in any way, whether loudly or quietly, whether externally or internally, applaud for someone who is moving in a direction or reaching for something God says don't. Love will not applaud or approve of someone's misfortune. And the greatest misfortune always results from moving away from what God has said. David was mad. And I get this. Look at verse 8 in 2 Samuel. Back to 2 Samuel 6. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Perez Uzzah. And I'm just going to be honest. I get this. I get this. I feel like I would be mad too. I feel like I would be confused too. Now, it's easy when we talk about a guy named Uzzah who lived thousands of years ago. But if we even for a second humanized him, and if we even for a second thought about the people in our world who we know and who we care about, you would be upset. I know I would be. And here's why. Because I don't know about you. But I would think God would at least take this situation into consideration. God, it's a worship party. Everybody's excited. Everybody's singing songs to you. This is all about you. Thousands have come out of their homes to escort this thing to its rightful home. Everyone's in a good mood. God, you don't kill people at parties. And yet, apparently, God does not tweak or adjust his truth based on a situation. His standard still remains. I would think, God, you'd at least take this situation into consideration. God says, my truth doesn't shift based on your situation. I told him not to touch it. I'd be upset. And if not that, I would at least say, God, surely you can at least consider. And this is the big one with us. As we apply this, this will make sense to you. I would say, God, surely you would at least take into consideration this kid's intentions. Is there any argument this kid meant well? As we like to say, his heart was in the right place. And God says, listen, my truth does not swivel on the axis of people's intentions. My truth is the axis around which everything must swivel. This is the hardest part for me, honestly, when I read this story. Because I'm thinking this kid, Azza, grew up in the same home that the ark lived in for most of his life. 
Which is probably why he insists on escorting that thing. Because he wants to make sure that it gets from the home it's lived in to its new and proper home without so much as a scratch. So of course if he sees that thing heading to the ground, he's going to do everything he can to steady it and God kills him. Come on God. His heart was in the right place. God said, my truth still stands. I would be upset. I'll think, okay, God, you've at least got to consider the, you know, the, the relationships here. You've at least got to consider the, the, the connections here. You've at least got to consider how would thousands and thousands of thousands of people who are in such a good mood for your name's sake, how are they going to feel? If you take this kid out while he's trying to help, what are they going to do? What's that going to do with their view of you? God said, apparently, my truth doesn't take a poll. My truth is not taking a survey for how different people are going to feel about how I carry out the truth I've established. Okay, but David is a man after your own heart. You surely know he's going to be angry. You know he's going to be confused. You know he might even stand at a distance. You know he might even skip church. You might know, you know he might even say, I don't want to do anything to do with the Bible. Yeah, I know David will be angry. But my truth doesn't shift and change and alter based on who it might please and who it might not. This is such a powerful story in which God establishes his truth as a standard that applies And applies across the board. And what I'm saying this morning is that is true about everyone in our lives who misses or moves away from God's truth. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 is that love cannot clap for and love cannot give a thumbs up to anyone who's choosing to move away from God's truth. Because by doing that, we would be applauding their misfortune. We would be applauding their demise. And that makes sense. Because again, you know, if Azam was your friend or he was a family member, you wouldn't watch him reaching for the ark, knowing what it meant and applaud. Or maybe not out loud, but in your heart, be like, okay, I'll just, whatever. You would take no delight in that. And yet, I I worry, as I look at my own life, and as I look at the church in many ways, that that's what we do all the time. We watch the others in our lives, people we claim to love, reaching for arcs and moving away from God. And we quietly applaud or approve. I I fear that it's actually trending a little bit in the church to delight in people's misfortune. 
I'm not saying we're going to celebrate that people are moving away from God, but I am saying there may be occasion where we'll hit the like button on a picture of the others in our life reaching for the ark. In the name of, I want to be supportive. Surely God will understand. I fear that that we've become a little bit okay with this and we think we are loving people well and so we'll start to say things like this like um well listen okay i know they're smoking weed i know my buddies smoke weed i know um and i know it's illegal and i know that god has said obey the laws of the land but you know what i mean their hearts are kind of in the right place They don't mean to hurt anybody. So surely God will take my assessment of their situation into consideration and they will be okay. And what I'm doing is quietly approving of them moving away from God. And we've called that love. Well, because at least we're we're, we're supportive. And at least they don't perceive us as being judgmental. And Paul would say, you are not loving your friends. Yes, I know that they are acting out in their same-sex attraction. But their hearts are in the right place. Church, God's truth does not swivel around where people's hearts may be. But we'll say this all the time. Hearts in the right place. They, they, They mean well. I mean, I mean, I realize that he just makes a lot of racist jokes at work. But listen, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't really, really mean it. He's not really going to do anything to hurt anybody. And so I'm just going to, you know, approve. I'm not going to clap, but I'm going to applaud with my laughter. And my laughter is going to applaud as this person moves further away from what God says. Because somehow I've grown to believe, you know what God would take, you know, he's, he's kind of a nice guy and he does other things well. So God will surely be like, eh, on this one. And Paul would say, you are not loving that person well. Well, but it's a unique situation. You don't understand. I mean, I understand that she's abusing alcohol and she's getting tipsy. I know she's doing that a lot, but they've gone through so much as a family. Surely God will understand that, that they go to this to experience a little bit of reprieve from the pain. God, you understand this situation. So for that reason, you know, I don't even think it's a big deal. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to engage And I love what Paul says. Paul says, no, love does not applaud. It does not approve of anything in the the life of someone I claim to love if it's moving them away from God. He says what love does is love rejoices. And I love what he says, rejoices with the truth. That's a beautiful term. He's saying love and truth. The picture is love and truth dancing in the streets. And I feel that what we've done is we have said, I'm going to go and I'm going to kind of dance with my friend and dance with this relationship and keep this relationship close at the expense of truth. And Paul would say, that's not love. What love would do is it would dance with truth and say, hey, come over here or we'll come over to you. But if what you are experiencing is the greatest happiness or the greatest bliss or the greatest joy, but it is apart from truth, you are moving away from God. And I want to tango with truth and move towards you and invite you to the truth of 
God. Ah, you know, it's just a work thing. You know, it was a work trip. And, you know, he and her, things went down. But you know what? Her husband has been emotionally unavailable for so long. So, frankly, I get it. I understand. So, I just want to be supportive. And Paul's saying, "That's, that's not love. I think what we've done, and this is it. In the church, I think we have said, no, it's not truth that rules. It's intentions that rule. Or it's situations that rule. And one of our favorite ones, well, it's the relationship that rules. I mean, if I start to share with my kids some of my honest concerns about the direction in which they're moving, they'll stop coming home for Christmas and it will hurt our relationship. And I don't want to do that. I would rather preserve our relationship, even if it means their relationship with God is moving in a dangerous direction. And Paul says, you are applauding their misfortune. But that's what I'll do. I'll say, listen, as long as we can stay close, because if I start to share things, if I start to tango and bring truth into their worlds, and they're going to think of me in a certain way, and they're not going to want to have anything to do with me, and they're going to start to move away from me, and I cannot afford to have people move away from me, I would rather they moved away from God. And stayed close to me. And then we'll say, well, you know, but my hope is that maybe one day we'll get to the place where I've approved and applauded and I've not said anything enough. That they will give me the opportunity to share truth with them. Stop it. I promise you. If my house is burning, I want you to tell me. I promise you, (laughs) when I stand before God on that day, I am not going to hear him say, oh, you and I are not cool. And look back and thank you for supporting me and being there for me and encouraging me when I know, wait, you knew this? You knew I was moving away from God? You knew I was in a difficult situation and you chose me liking you over you telling me the truth? I'm never going to thank you for that. I promise you, your kids will not thank you one day that you valued your relationship with them over their relationship with God. I promise you, your friends are not going to say to you, I just love how when the church is being judgmental, you are there for me. And I realize oftentimes we'll react to the extreme of a judgmental church that likes to point the finger and condemn people. No, love does not dishonor others. We've already talked about that. But nor is love going to say, I'm just going to embrace and... Not say anything. What if this is the summer? When the church stepped into this beautiful space of loving with truth. I love the description of Jesus in the Bible. He was full of grace and he was full of truth. He was always looking for opportunities to share the truth with people. Hey, the kingdom of God is here. Hey, if you continue moving in this direction, it is going to be your misfortune. And Jesus would never applaud that. So he would share truth with folks. But many times people wouldn't want to listen to what Jesus said. And Jesus didn't say, well, then I'm done with you. He would still in grace, not only embrace people, but he was willing to go to the cross to pay for their messes and to pay for their rebellion and to pay for their mistakes. And I wonder if if being Jesus in our world this summer doesn't require us to take some courageous steps, church, and to be willing to go into that relationship that you're aware of. You know the person in your world is moving in a dangerous direction and you've not said anything. 
You've not brought the truth to offer it to them. Maybe this is a summer where we do. And I always would encourage you, ask for permission. Hey, are you okay if I share a concern I have with you? And somebody may say, nope, not interested. Please? Nope. All right, well, I'll pray and I'll come and ask you again. And if I love you enough, then I'm going to go bring some other people and we'll come and knock down your door because your house is burning and I need you to know. Nope, not interested. Okay, I'll respect that. But I may come back and ask you again. Because I'm just trying to think how I'd want somebody to interact with me if I was in a dangerous situation. Ask for permission. And if the person says, sure, which most of the people in your life will say, yeah, okay, sure, all right. Here it is. You don't have to believe what I believe. But I could not possibly say I believe the things I believe, truly believe, and not share what I believe with you because I love you. This may be hard to hear, but here it is. And the person may be like, oh, thank you. Or the person may say, oh, get out of my face. I don't want to hear it. We're done. Okay, man, I'm really, really sorry to hear that. But I I wanted you to know. And the truth of God is worth it. People having the truth of God, not in condemning and judgmental ways, but offering truth to people we love. Because love always rejoices in the truth. It never rejoices in evil. And I just wonder what you would say the side you've taken has been. Have you been the quiet, kind of quietly approving? Or have you been the person that is like, hey, can I please talk to you? Can I please talk to you? I have such good news for you. That there is hope and there is joy and there is delight and there's freedom and there's forgiveness. If you would come to the truth. And the truth is ultimately a person who is willing to forgive you of every mistake that you've ever made. So, Lord, I do pray. That you would give us, as your people, immense courage. I know this is heavy, but I pray that you would give us a willingness. Not to believe that love means we agree and love means we support. um, But love means we'll come alongside and share the truth. And come alongside and share the truth. We won't condemn. We won't abandon. We won't judge but we will share truth. And so I just pray that you would do something amazing in our relationships this summer. That for some of us, maybe for the first time, we will not be the ones who just talk about that family member when no one else talks to them. Give us the courage to love them enough to share with them. And do amazing things in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.